Welcome to The Snake's Paw. I'm Andrew Ferrier, and this week we have a story for you called Ride or Die. Welcome, sisters. Her whisper fills the dim, silent room. She looks like the rest of us around the circle. The same white cloak, the same low white hood hiding her face. But she's the one who called us here, and we await her next words. Sisters, she says again. For eons we have been locked away. The world has changed in our absence. Men have grown weak, and women have grown weaker. Oh, sisters. And brother, I add quietly. Sisters and brother, she says. Our captivity ends tonight. With one hand still clasping the cloak at her throat, she pulls back her hood. Her face is beautifully painted like a skull, white against black. Her eyes rise to us. And then she releases her fingers, letting the cloak fall to the floor, and the bloody gash across her throat takes center stage. From it, a long trail of blood runs down her neck and beneath the collar of her black lace dress. From around the circle come gasps, then cheers, and the teeth drawn on her lips pull back to make way for her real ones as she smiles. As the cheers quiet, she looks to her neighbor, who in turn pulls back her hood and drops her cloak, all in one gesture. She too has a skull-painted face, hers marred by a wound just in front of her ear. Our leader smiles, the circle offers quiet hums of approval, and I look between the two of them and grip my cloak tighter. Beside me, the next figure along the circle reveals itself. Another black dress, another skull face. Three. Three makes a pattern. She seems unhurt, but as she looks each of us in the eye, a line of blood runs from the edge of her mouth. Her eyes land on me last, and all the other eyes with them. There's nothing for it. I release my grip on the sheet that's draped around me, and I reveal my Spider-Man costume. Happy Halloween, I try, but I can't get through it without looking at the floor. I'm not the last one. As we keep going around the circle, I see two more skeleton girls, but there's also a witch, a German barmaid, and a unicorn onesie. The last woman drops her bedsheet to reveal, well, a lot. She's in a crop top, a tutu, and cowboy boots, showing about as much skin as a night in early November will allow. After presenting herself at a few flattering angles, she gives a completely unabashed smile to Celeste, our leader who is also smiling, but by now only with the painted teeth. Sisters, Celeste says half-heartedly, let's go take back the world. As the circle breaks up and the overhead lights come back on, one of them calls out, All right, girls, let's put these sheets back where we got them. If we ask for them to be replaced, the host is going to charge a fee. The women split into groups, and I stand on my own. I arrived just in time for quick introductions before the mandatory costume reveal, but I was hours late thanks to a delayed flight, and by then the proverbial ice had already broken into several icebergs of two to four people each, now floating at a comfortable distance from each other. Just as well. To me, these women aren't prospective friends. They're my competition for Celeste's time, and my puzzle pieces for who she's become. The state of the puzzle at this moment? The skeleton girls are complimenting each other on the execution of their makeup, 
except for the one who's busy spitting extra fake blood into the kitchen sink. The Witch and the Unicorn are comparing reviews for bars they read about online, and Tutu Cowgirl is at the mirror fixing her hair from the ravages of the bedsheet. Pete, hey. Celeste is back in the room, and she's come straight to me. I'm glad you could make it. I give her a smile, though I'm not sure I agree. Token gay friend on a bachelorette party is a square I would happily have left empty on my bingo card. On the other hand, Celeste is my oldest friend, a title she slowly migrated to from best friend in the years since I moved away from home. We've gotten by for a long time now on promises to catch up, promises that are earnest but never urgent and so get steadily broken. So when she called to invite me, it felt all at once strangely intimate and kind of insulting. I asked as discreetly as I could if I was the only guy invited, which I was. Also in the category of red flags, I didn't know anyone else who was coming, her fiancé Chris from the one photo I've seen looks kinda douchey, and I'm just not at all sure my friend is still the person I remember. And still I said yes, because we were on the phone and there wasn't time to come up with an excuse, and because hope in that moment, outweighed doubt by just a little, although I can't say it stayed that way in the weeks since. Yeah, sorry about the holdup. Obviously, a delayed flight wasn't my fault, but I'd spent my long layover thinking, god damn, this had better be worth it, and now an apology feels right. You look incredible. Is this something I was supposed to... It's the show I mentioned in the packet we mailed out? I was hoping... Sorry if it wasn't... This, I remember, is classic Celeste apologizing for no other reason than that someone else has apologized, and it's more comfortable if the conversational score stays even. It's a nostalgic old dance, and my steps come right back to me. No, I'm really sorry. Things have been crazy at home. I just haven't been on top of stuff. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to ask a lot of time from you. Who knows how long the dance would go on, but Tutu Cowgirl steps in. Emma, I remember. Hey girl, quick check-in. You know I'm the worst with dates. Halloween was last month, right? Celeste is visibly patient. It was two days ago, so this is Halloween weekend, and today is Day of the Dead. Emma smiles. You're gonna have to tell me what that means. It's a holiday, Celeste says, and a lot of people here celebrate it, plus it fits the vibe of the show I mentioned in the packet. That's why tonight's schedule starts with costumes. And sorry, just refresh me, Emma says. When on tonight's schedule are we going out? We'll go find a nice cocktail bar a little later, but next thing is making tacos for dinner. Riley already bought the groceries. Emma has slowly smiled wider and wider, and her face is nearing capacity. Celeste, I love your ideas, but I want to make sure this is going to be fun for everyone. She takes a little step back, speaking up just enough to get the rest of the room listening. And just because it's Day of the Dead doesn't mean we have to act like we are. She pauses, then makes her way toward the counter and the bag of groceries. Riley, did you get what I asked you for? One of the skeleton women turns. They're all friends from the vet's office where Celeste works, and this one somehow looks mookish and meek even under the paint. She points out a bag. Emma pulls out vodka, tomato juice, and bubblegum-flavored Pedialyte and starts mixing them into a drink I later hear her call a Bloody Mary Poppins. I don't want to order you around, Celeste, but there are things you're free to do tonight that you'll never be able to do again. She fishes through another grocery bag and pulls out a banana, which she starts to peel, but not before giving Celeste a wholly unnecessary waggle of the eyebrows. 
In a few more weeks, you'll be signing in blood. And to my brother, who, I promise you, is not out getting a mani-pedi right now. Emma pauses for a second, struggling to peel the banana. And if I understood you right, while he's out on Bourbon Street, you want to stay in and cook? Riley starts to say, Miss Emma, but Celeste interrupts her. Emma, we both understand what we're committing to, and both of us are happy with... Celeste, I've done literally hundreds of these. They're like a fortune cookie for your marriage. If you stay in tonight, cats aren't the only thing you're going to be neutering. She swings the banana in a sweeping, rhetorical gesture before going back to trying to peel it. And yeah, sometimes they get crazy and destroy marriages, sometimes right at the altar. And you know what? That's a good thing. It tests your relationship. It tells everyone whether you're ready. Our job is to put all the temptations we can think of right there in your reach and see whether you can stand them. She finally exposes the top of the banana and brings it to her mouth. Riley shouts, Miss Emma, that's a plantain! It's like watching someone bite a raw potato. Emma looks momentarily stunned, but then she reasserts her smile and chews, looking at each of us in turn and finally swallowing. Having demonstrated her dominance over it, she sets the corrupted plantain down on the counter, takes a sip of her drink, and sighs. Look, Celeste, I'm sorry you weren't told what this tradition is really about. It's supposed to be fun, but it's tough fun, the kind that tells you who you really are. And we're all here to make sure you come out stronger on the other side. So we'll compromise. Sisters? She looks around the room and raises her drink. For eons, men and women have been getting hitched, and women have been getting the short end of the stick. So let's go take back the world by having a night that'll put the boys to shame. There's a chorus of woos. Some are enthusiastic, and some just seem daunted into submission. But together, they're a clear majority. Liquid calories only, girls. We gotta save room for dessert. Emma gives a big squishy wink as she walks away. I'm not feeling like the voice of bubbly positivity, but Celeste is clearly a little gobsmacked, so I assign a smile to my face and change the subject. So, the skeleton paint is a day of the dead thing? Um, partly. She's distracted, but there's a flicker of light. Mostly it's that TV show me and Riley and the others from work watch together. What's it about? And that's what she needed to hear. For the next several minutes, I'm nodding along to her recap of the show, in which a troop of Amazonian warrior women rises from the dead to discover that they are the sole survivors of their ancient and advanced civilization, and they set about searching for men who are fit mates to rebuild their empire with, and have a little fun with, haha. A search that, for some reason, takes place on the streets of New Orleans's French Quarter. Black magic, backstabbing politics, and steamy romances ensue, and the recent season finale had Salvandrin, the hunky villain, proposing to Naoshima, the group's favorite lead character, and since it was all any of them would be able to talk about all weekend anyway, haha, naturally it would have been the perfect theme for a bachelorette party if only everyone had read the packet, haha. By the end of the recap, I'm feeling less optimistic about having common ground with Celeste this weekend, but the tangent has done its job, and I try to steer the conversation in a new direction. So, is that why you picked New Orleans? She nods. Plus, you know, not a lot to do back home. A few people didn't want to come, but it's not that bad a drive, and I figured we could all use a change of pace. I'd meant New Orleans versus any other major city, not New Orleans versus our tiny hometown, 
but good to know that even going this far was a controversial vote. Well, I say, it sounds like if Emma gets her way, we'll pretty much be reenacting your show tonight. I was proud of my segue, but it's clear that bringing Emma back up is the wrong move. Guess dinner is scrapped. I better get to negotiating. I'm not excited for the results of that negotiation, but I'm even less excited for the process. Hey, tell you what, have you got some spare makeup? I can still be dead with y'all. Someone's bound to get Spider-Man eventually. And so I'm secluded in the bathroom as the girls debate their plans. I'm not much at makeup, but there's plenty of both black and white, and with some trial and error, I pull off something resembling what Celeste and her friends did. I almost forget that each of them also has a bloody wound. After some looking, I spot the red, just a last bit of it in a dropper. What would it take to kill Spider-Man? Right between the eyes, I decide. I tilt my head back, placing the dropper against my forehead, and squeeze. Then the door opens, I flinch, and the blood runs into my eye. It's one of the girls, I can't see which one. We bumble through the necessary pleasantries. You okay? Yep, fine. Makeup giving you trouble? You could say that. Ha, Halloween, the one day a year when boys take longer to get ready than girls. I aim at a commensurate laugh and overshoot the mark. After she leaves, I manage to look in the mirror. My eye is blazing red, and the line of blood zigzags from my eyebrow into my eye and then across my nose before mercifully disappearing. Compared to the other's dramatic injuries, I look like I have a disastrously popped pimple. So much for giving Spider-Man the end he deserves. I step out of the bathroom and find the girls ready to leave. One of the others wordlessly shoves a sash over my shoulder. I look down to read it. Ride or die. We're the only people on the block as we step out into the dim streetlights. It's a relief. Inside, the girls' laughter ricocheted off the walls, but out here it can disperse into the residential silence. It's a chilly few blocks walk to the French Quarter, and it's clear when we've arrived, thanks partly to the architecture, the looming ironwork and gated alleys, and partly to the costumed crowd, a mix of heavily dressed vampires and shivering sexy nurses. I have to admit, it feels like no other place I've been. A few blocks in, we start to hear the loud voices of tour guides, each with their own crowd of people damning the sidewalk. We squeeze through the narrow walkways left open behind them, and each time we overhear a fragment of a ghost story. He could only watch in horror as she hurled herself from the roof, and the nails came flying out of the rows of coffins, all of her joints broken and reset in reverse. I've been enough places to expect that the mystique of this place would be recruited to the cause of selling something. And it looks like the house special here is the promise of danger and immortality. One more variation on the illusion sold at every theme park and casino in the world. The idea that while you're here, you're the center of attention and wishes really do come true. I expect the pitch to get subtler as we go, and I'm on my guard for it, but I can feel the tug of wonder and curiosity all the same. Celeste catches up with me. She's wearing a sash now, too, one that says, Bride or Die, and her ensemble is topped off with a tiara. We should take one of these tours, she says. The words, hell no, come to my mind, but I manage to suppress them and say, so what are we doing tonight? You'll see. It came down to a compromise, but I'm hoping it's one you'll like. 
Her dodging eye contact makes her seem less than confident, and I feel like I need to speak up. This is your time, you know. You're allowed to throw your weight around a little. Her smile is exasperated. Emma is Craig's sister. That's right, not Chris, Craig. Douchey face and douchey name. His family is paying for most of the wedding, and they really wanted Emma to be my maid of honor, so I'm not in a position to tell her no on much. We can always run away, I say. Just the two of us. I give my voice just enough of a sarcastic lilt to let her believe what she wants about whether I mean it or not. She laughs. See, this is why I had to invite you. You're my get-out-of-jail-free card. She checks my reaction. These girls are great, but I see them all the time, and they're not big on trying new things. I feel a flush of appreciation, but there's something odd in her phrasing, and I decide to keep it casual for now. Is being here new? You don't ever come down for, like, weekends? People need their animals taken care of on weekends. She shrugs. It just feels like one of those places, like, if you wanted to try being something new, you could do whatever and no one would bat an eye. She looks up. You don't feel it? I shrug. You live in a city long enough and there's a lot less that feels new. She smiles. Wouldn't know. Well, you're here now. What new thing are you going to be tonight? A sentient undead seductress. Duh. We turn a corner, running after Emma as she barges out in front of traffic, and we pass along the edge of a square dominated by a massive church, lit from below like the face of a storyteller around a campfire. Its stained glass illuminates a couple dozen sandwich boards advertising the names of tarot readers who speak up to offer their services as we pass. Beyond them is a fenced park, and standing before its locked gates, basking in all that atmosphere, a man with a stovepipe hat and a massive, sharpie black beard is bellowing, A severed head on every spike of this fence. I ask Celeste, So, are you a believer then? She shrugs. Who knows? I'm ready to hear all arguments. I can't tell how serious she's being. Are you a disbeliever? Yes, definitely. So you know for sure that there's no such thing as a ghost? I mean, if there were, wouldn't these people be telling stories about the ghosts of, like, dinosaurs and stuff? I know I'm not being original, but on this subject, I don't feel the need to be. I don't know. Maybe you only see what you look for. Maybe the giant meteor hit so hard it even pulverized the ghosts. Also, I'm pretty sure this part of Louisiana is made from river deposits that are like a few thousand years old at most, so there wouldn't have been dinosaurs here. That feels like winning on a technicality. An alley takes us along the side of the church, and then opens into a fenced garden on one side. A group is huddled along the fence, listening to their guide, a Jack Sparrow look-alike. Celeste slows down. Shall we hear the evidence? The guide is already mid-story. The night before Armand was to be married in this very church, he went out drinking with friends. One of his old rivals saw him sloppy with wine and knowing there would never be a better chance than now, challenged Armand to a duel. His friends egged him on, and they drew swords in this very alley. Armand was gifted with a blade, and even with the wine gripping his limbs, he held his own. But his rival took a bold swing and struck Armand in the face. That dark spot on the wall, a spot that has returned through every coat of paint since that night, marks the place Armand's jawbone struck, as the rival's sword knocked it clean off. But that was not the end for him. 
Armand lay quivering and crying, and could he have spoken, he would have begged his rival to run him through and end his pain. But instead... The guide pauses and looks right at us. Sir, madam, if you care to hear the rest, the tour is a mere $25, plus tip if you're feeling generous. There's much more to come. In a ghost story, death is never the end. Thanks. I think we can use our imaginations. I'm relieved to see the rest of the group pressing on, and I tug Celeste's sleeve to bring her along. In another block, the crowds have thickened, and the neon has overshadowed the dingy pastel paint of the old buildings. Surprise, surprise, we're on Bourbon Street. I'm resigning myself to a night of karaoke and shots until I see where the girls are headed. The street may be flashing with every color, but there is no mistaking the rainbow on that flagpole. Damn it. She's looking at me sidelong. Surprise, she says. Celeste, I can't go in there. I've got the scarlet bee on me. What does that mean? I mean, you just don't... I take a breath. There's kind of a stigma around bachelorette parties in gay bars. I'm sorry, I didn't realize. I thought we were just coming up with a good... Why? I mean, for a long time, it was because you're celebrating, you know, marriage. And for most people in these places, that was, you know, not an option. She nods. Okay, that makes sense. What if I take the sash off? Nowadays, it's more that straight women attract straight men, and straight men are what you're actively avoiding when you go to a place like this. She nods again. So if any guys hit on us, get them out the door. Is there anything else? Well, bachelorettes also get super trashed and act skanky with the dancers and go up on stage during the shows and order drinks that take forever to make and scream a lot. So we're okay as long as we don't do those things? You wanna bet Emma isn't already in there motorboating some guy's ass? Okay, point taken, but the thing is, Emma pretty much insisted on male dancers and I thought you'd be more comfortable if we, I mean, you might meet someone. When I want to meet someone, I can do it on my phone. Okay, sorry, it wasn't a good choice. Just, look, they're already in, and it's my first time going to a place like this, so let's stay for one drink, and you can make sure I don't embarrass myself. I realize we're already several compromises deep. I nod, she smiles, and we walk toward the door together. There's no line, and it's crowded inside, but not nearly what it could be. This seems like the kind of place that really gets going after midnight. But there are enough people near the entrance to give us the customary once-over. I'm used to that, and I'm used to the eyes moving on more often than they linger. But I'm not used to this kind of linger, the kind that suggests I'm an intruder. I lean over to Celeste's ear and say, over the music, Be right back. I'm gonna go find the bathroom. She gives me a look I can't read, and I'm off. As I walk, I spot Emma, leaning onto the bar, stilettos not even touching the floor, Waving a 20 at a dancer atop the bar, dressed in nothing but tight, elaborate boxer briefs covered in evocative but useless straps. She beckons, he drops into a crouch, and she says something right in his ear, tucking the 20 into one of the apparently not useless straps and pointing down the bar, right at the stool where Celeste is settling in. Well, she won't be alone. I spend a few minutes making the circuit of the downstairs, which has two bar areas on either side of a recessed dance floor. I'm doing my best to focus on things like that, the geography of the place, and avoid looking at people. 
but I can't help noticing that we aren't the only bachelorette party at the bar. We aren't even the only bachelorette party at the bar with this costume theme. Celeste was right that their TV show is having a moment. There are women everywhere trying to combine sexy outfits and mortal injuries with various degrees of success, most of them also featuring some kind of bachelorette gear clearly made to be matchy, but strangely missing their matches. I see a tank top that says Bomb Squad, but no corresponding bride labeled the bomb. Coming back around toward the entrance, I spot Celeste waving at me. As she sees she's caught my eye, she smiles and sits a little taller, and the tiara in her hair plays disco ball, sending motes around her with each pulse of the lights. She has the superhuman aura places like this are engineered to create. I find myself thinking how pretty my friend is, how much we must still have in common, how she's someone I'd want to be seen here with, and suddenly I'm in the illusion. As I make my way toward her, I have to pass along the edge of the dance floor, the crowd of guys all benefiting in their own way from that touch of magic and mystery. It unsteadies me, and I make myself look for something real. And then, a few steps away from me, the wall moves. There's an almost invisible door into an alley, pushed open by the shoulder of a barback loaded down with bottles to restock. They hurry across to the bar with all the mundane haste of anyone who makes their living on tips, the towel in their back pocket whipping as they dodge the fast-moving bartenders. Here's someone who lives behind the illusion. Someone who, even as visitors come and go in the thousands, is still here, making it work. I make my way to Celeste. The other girls are here and there, a couple of them hovering close by, a few more swaying in the outer reaches of the dance floor. One has crossed the dance floor to the second bar, where there's less competition for a drink. Riley and the work friends have found a drag queen and are taking selfies with her. That leaves Celeste sitting alone at the bar, with neighbors to either side. Are the rest of them too preoccupied for her, or is she waiting for me? Either way, she's spent more time with me tonight than anybody. I lay a hand on her shoulder, and she turns around. Sorry to take a while, I say. Just getting the lay of the land. Looking for the darkest corner to hide in? But the resentment is superficial. This place is amazing. Why haven't you taken me somewhere like this before? I follow her eyes around the room. She's taking in details I missed. In a nearby corner, a pair of older men dressed as George and Jane Jetson, with incredibly large wigs and even larger cardboard flying saucers built out from their hips. On a section of the dance floor, a small group of friends dressed in abstract geometrical costumes, each covered completely in a different animal print, dancing in an inward-facing circle and oblivious to everyone else. And across the dance floor, perched on a stool at the second bar, a massive man leaning back and surveying the room, wearing billowing black pants, a full face mask of draping black fabric, and a blood-stained lace collar over a bare chest, a costume that looks part Victorian aristocrat, part executioner, part Chippendale dancer. It makes no sense, but it has that delicate combination of unignorable and unapproachable that people love to cultivate in places like this. I look back at Celeste. Is that what the skeleton goes for when she's out of the closet? She hits me lightly on the arm. The costumes are so good. I knew people were still going to be celebrating. She focuses her attention on me. See, you can loosen up. No one knows who we are. It's not like you're wearing a name tag. I don't need to. I'm the dead Spider-Man with a sash and pink eye. See any more of those? She rolls her eyes. The dancers are good looking. My cynicism goes from put on to sincere in an instant. Please, these guys are a bunch of straight college students making money to support their cocaine habit. 
Not Javier? Who the hell is Javier? She points him out, the dancer Emma was talking to before. From here, he's backlit, an appealing silhouette with bills protruding from all over his weird cargo boxer briefs. There's a swell in the music and he does an acrobatic little drop, which the people on that side of the bar seem to enjoy. She shouts over the music. He's a grad student in political economy. He dances like one, I say, and she rolls her eyes again. Anyway, they're not interested. They only pay attention as long as you pay money. I know. Emma paid him to come dance for me. And you chatted him up about his academic career? She's going to want a refund. This is easy. And if we could go on like this all night, I'd be happy. My eyes focus on the space behind Celeste, which now contains two women I've never seen before. Compared to the mixed costume commitment among our group, they seem to have gone for compromise across the board. Just enough bachelorette and just enough dead to get both points across. Both chemical blondes, one with curls covering one eye and barely visible under the hair, enough reddish black skin to suggest something awful on the hidden part of her face. The other has a crimped nimbus that might be real or a wig and might be retro or fashion forward, I have no idea. A huge bruise peeks out from under her gold lame tube top. Both have fluorescent drinks in plastic cups. Crimp Cloud leans in close to Celeste's ear, and I can just hear her saying, I like your costume. I can't tell if she's being sincere or sarcastic, but Celeste smiles and says, Thanks, you too. Glad to see you made it out of the ground. Both of the women laugh for a very graceful length of time. One Eye looks up at Celeste's tiara. Oh my god, you're the bride. That's so cute. Are you having fun? Crimp Cloud asks. Celeste and I both blink. One Eye doesn't wait for an answer. We just wanted to give you this, she says, in a voice like she's offering to sell an illegal drug. She offers a rolled up piece of thick paper with a red ribbon tied around it from our friend. She gestures discreetly with her drink across the dance floor. There, looking back at us, is the huge man with the mask and the lace collar and the blood stain, his arms crossed, completely still apart from one hand that twists something, a feather, between two fingers. Seriously? Celeste asks. One eye smiles. So seriously. Celeste watches their faces as if for some tell that there's a joke in progress, then looks to me like I'm in on it, or maybe thinking this is some kind of traditional gay bar initiation ritual. I try to make an expression that conveys, this is the thing we talked about outside except somehow even creepier, but then something dawns on her. Oh, he's being Salvandrin. It takes me a second to place this as the name of one of her TV show characters. I didn't recognize it with the mask. Yeah says Crimp Cloud. We told him the worst part of his costume was his face. They laugh together again. Do you want to read it? Celeste takes the piece of paper, gingerly slides the ribbon off one end, and unrolls it. All I can make out is flourishes of calligraphy. But on Celeste's face, a smile fights confusion. I take the moment to give the two women what I'd like to think is an intimidatingly skeptical look, but neither of them deigns to make eye contact. Celeste, though, does look at me when she's finished. What do you think I should do? I arch my eyebrows. I think it was you who said this was cause for getting him out the door. She looks down at the note again. Yeah, but the way you described it, it sounded like guys were getting up in people's faces and being obnoxious, not writing letters. We can bring him an answer if you want. One eye croons, offering a pen. 
Celeste looks at the two of them. I have to think of an in-character response. She turns around on the stool, uses the bar to write something, and hands the paper to One-Eye, who reads it, gasps, and says, too funny, before walking off. Crimp Cloud stays. So what have you and your friends been doing? I lean over to Celeste. I'm gonna get a drink. She looks at me, and I register dismay on her face before I look away. It occurs to me that she's just as likely as I am to be keeping tally, trying to figure out whether I'm the person she remembers and whether I'll be there if she needs me. I add, I won't be far off, and I step away along the bar, near the end, where there's a single empty stool, close enough to keep an eye out, but far enough not to have to know the details. I'm on the second stool away from the wall, and beside me, on the last stool, is a middle-aged man in a straw hat, watching Celeste and her new friends. His eyes shift to me, and I search for a comment to disentangle myself from the situation I obviously just came from. Is this hell? I ask. He breaks a little smile. Just purgatory. Then he looks down, presumably at my ride-or-die sash. That's not the worst gear I've ever seen. There's something flirtatious about the look down, and I don't share the interest. Instinctively, I tack towards self-deprecation. If I'd known where we were going, I wouldn't have worn a spandex bodysuit. He chuckles. Pays to advertise. Besides, he adds, the choicest steaks have a bit of marbling. Instantly, I'm annoyed and self-conscious. But I remind myself that plenty of guys in bars like this would rather fish with a net than a spear, and so they just start every conversation this way. Maybe this one will know how to take no for an answer. But I don't have time to say no before he speaks again. You trying to get a drink? It'd help. He looks along the bar and gives the kind of nod that's almost invisible to most people, but loud and clear to service professionals. The bartender comes toward us, bypassing plenty of eager customers, and sets a glass of some brown spirit with no ice in front of my new acquaintance, where there are already two other identical glasses, one empty, one nearly so. I'm about to speak, but the guy on the stool says, bring him something sweet, and then the bartender is off again. I bite back my irritation. I was going to go gin and tonic, but guess we can't have everything. He smiles. Most bachelorettes seem to prefer not to taste their alcohol. Or their roofies, I think. But if I'm going to be stuck with this guy for a few minutes, talking shit about bachelorettes feels like safe territory. Well, I used to think the same thing, but today I was initiated into the ancient order of bachelorettes, and now I can tell you they are the filthiest, most liquor-swilling people on God's green earth. I glance at his multiple glasses. Present company excluded, I'm sure. He raises the glass he's been nursing, downs it, and picks up the next one. Makes it easier to put up with the tourists. You live here? It feels like a question in my head, but I realize it didn't come out that way. I didn't get the sense this was a local's joint. He shrugs. Used to be the place where everybody knew your name. I still know mine. Named a stool after me. He leans back a little, and I can see a gleam on the wall behind him. There's a small plaque catching the blue light for a second. Seriously? I pull up the flashlight app on my phone and lean forward just enough to put its steady beam on the plaque. Let it hereby be known, the plaque says, that this stool is the rightful domain of Angelo Tramontine and that all others shall yield it in his august presence. 
His name is there in gothic black letter, a weird contrast with the bass-boosted pop music. Wow. I briefly ponder how many drinks you have to buy to get something named after you in a bar. So you're here a lot. Is it always like this, or just a Halloween thing? It's All Souls. Sorry? Today, it's All Souls Day. After Halloween comes All Saints Day, dedicated to the virtuous deceased, and then All Souls Day, dedicated to everyone else. Traditionally a day for visiting cemeteries and otherwise communing with the dead. It's stuck in the shadow of Halloween, but for some of us it's more important. The worst is when it falls on a weekend. Sacred Holiday just gets chewed up and shat out as one more day of party. The bartender is back and sets something in front of me. Whatever it is, it's pink and has a cocktail umbrella. I reach for my wallet, but he's already gone. I set a five down on the bar. If this is going to be the kind of night that involves drinks from strangers, better to be on the bartender's good side. But then, for all I know, something sweet was code for something that'll knock you on your ass in 15 minutes. I pick up the drink and resolve to take the tiniest sips possible. Back to Angelo. I didn't know that, I say. My friend mentioned Day of the Dead. He gives Celeste a glance, and for the first time I know what his face looks like when it shows a shred of respect. But I didn't realize it was a big deal. For some of us, it's the highlight of the year. He watches me. I smile, not sure what else to do. Kind of a one-day break from the status quo? He waits. My smile waits, too. You're not the quickest on the uptake, are you? I'm sorry? Did you finish reading the plaque? I thought I had, but I lift the light to it again, and I see in the bottom corner a small engraving that must have been a late addition. 1923 to 1985. Not gone long, just walking it off. I look at him again. His expression is steady. I raise the light to his face. I don't know what I'm looking for. Whether his eyes react? They don't, and the whites are yellow. But this seems to be familiar footing for him. He lifts his straw hat. My flashlight illuminates one side of his face and leaves the rest in shadow, like a gibbous moon. On the far side, all I can see is an outline, and something about it is off. I pass my phone from one hand to the other, moving the light around him, and in the same moment he turns to offer me a clear view of the missing place on the side of his head, the light reflecting down its layers. I look away and take a long, slow breath. I'd like to say that my mind gets right down to the business of reckoning with what all this means, the fact that he looks the way he does and that he's still here and talking. I wouldn't even mind saying that my first response was to get away and buy time to figure things out. Instead, I find myself in the same headspace I always do when death comes up in conversation, flailing for something insightful and consoling to say. What I come up with is, I've seen living people who looked worse. I'll be he says as he puts his hat back on. Aren't you sweet? With pleasantries out of the way, my mind gets around to ramifications. So, it's just today? Just today. And is it just you? No, it is not just me. My mind wants to look back the way I came, but I keep my eyes on him. He's clearly done this before, and I don't want to give him the satisfaction of seeming terrified. If you were to guess, I ask, aiming for an academic tone, how much of the room would you say is dead? He shrugs. I don't socialize. Yeah, but ballpark. 
maybe half? I let myself look over at Celeste. She's talking with both of the women from earlier, and now there are two more. How about them? He peers around me. Looks that way. But they were talking with my friend about a TV show they like. Well, sure, what do you think the dead do with their time? This makes a surprising amount of sense. So, the dead get one day a year to walk the earth, and they spend it binging TV shows? Oh, no, no, no. No, we're here all the time. We just get one day to be material. The rest of the time, all we can do is watch and listen. Come the big day, folks do all kinds of things. There's a fellow who spent the last 40 years planning his novel, has one day a year to find paper and pen and try to get down a year's worth of thoughts, and then he has to hide them somewhere so in another year he can pick up where he left off. I think he's maybe two chapters in by now. What do you do? Sit here. Watch the others struggle. Laugh. Accept offerings from the bartender. His mention of the others brings me back to a previous thought. Hold on. Everybody in this building looks at least like they know it's the 21st century. Everybody? I follow where he's looking and see a woman on the dance floor doing the Macarena with absolute earnestness. I glance back at Celeste's entourage, at Crimp Cloud and her hair. Definitely not fashion forward, then. Okay, but I was actually just talking about this with my friend, and I'm sure you get asked this all the time. Why don't we see the ghosts of, what, dinosaurs? Did your friend mention river deposits? Because that's the easy one. Yeah, forget dinosaurs. What about just older stuff? Like, I don't know, French people? He snorts. Most of those aristocrat pricks wouldn't have been caught dead in a place like this even when they were alive. And there's turnover. Dead people are just people. They don't like when their neighborhood changes. Things get annoying enough and they'll leave. And tourists are annoying when they're just here for a weekend. The ones who die and stay here? I have to reflect on that for a second. So, all these people around the room who look like dead bachelorettes are, in fact, dead bachelorettes, yes. Bachelorettes like you are the highest risk category there is. Because in the first place, you've got to die here, and you all are far above average at that, which, in Louisiana, is saying something. He takes a slurp of his brown spirit. But then once you're dead, something has to keep you here. Something has to keep you here? What, what keeps them here? He shrugs. A sense of purpose? They came here on a mission, and they were stopped from finishing it. He looks satisfied. I didn't offer him terror, but my befuddlement seems to be more to his taste. I'm talking about the party. Wait, you're telling me a goddamn bachelorette party has the, like, cosmic significance to determine someone's afterlife? I'm saying you're in the middle of a ceremony, and ceremonies have momentum. Once you start it, you expect it to finish, and you expect it to finish a certain way. So you hang around longer than you ever wanted to, trying to make things end right. He gulps at his drink and leans casually against the bar. Doesn't have to be that way. A few of us manage to see through it all, realize how meaningless life's little rituals are, and then we're free to do what we want. But if you make the mistake of believing in them, they can trap you, and they'll hold on even if something interrupts them part way. Something like death. Something like death. So, if I died during this trip, I would become one of these party zombies 
I'm not like a believer in the bachelorette tradition. I definitely find this whole thing meaningless and tedious and really embarrassing. Hmm, did you commit to it? I mean, yeah, I told her I'd be here. Do you have hopes that this trip is gonna change something? I'd like to reconnect with my friend. Have you gone through any kind of ritual? Sort of. Do you feel trapped? Oh God. He smiles. Well, for what it's worth, odds are you're not gonna die here unless you make stupid choices, or... He glances around at some of the dead near us. If the wrong kind of person takes an interest in you. And it definitely won't be you they're interested in. I mean, at the risk of quibbling on a technicality, you seemed interested in me. Whatever makes you feel good, fella, but no one here needs anything from you, least of all me. Okay, sorry. I'm talking about them. They are stuck here. They locked themselves into something they can't finish alone. And they need someone to help them do it. Right, but the thing they started is a bachelorette party. They need to, what, dance in here for a while, interrupt a drag show, do a body shot off a stripper, and done. You're not listening. Think about it. This commitment you've made. When will you feel it's done? I have to think ahead. The flight home will be a relief, but in a few more weeks I'll be back on a plane, and then... The wedding. Correct. And that was true for all of these idiots, too. They kicked the bucket, their friends left, and they've been waiting to be part of a wedding ever since. And look at them. Would you invite them to yours? I look around at the bedraggled, scattered women. I imagine them asking me for anything outside the flattering darkness of a bar, how quickly I'd fake a phone call or a dying mother or whatever else it took to get away. And a bachelorette, he's leaned close and is whispering near my ear, is not a solitary animal. She will submit to a leader, even if she's mistreated. He looks over toward a woman huddled in a corner, shivering despite the warm indoor air, in a tank top reading, third alternate best bitch, her eyes darting around the room. She will do as her leader says, as long as she thinks it'll get her to the end of the ritual. You're saying, at the top of this thing, there's some kind of dead bride? No. Not yet, but there is, he looks across the room again, a groom. I follow his eyes and see the hulking masked man, still leaning against the bar, arms crossed, and now one eye is there, whispering in his ear. I look for Celeste. Where she was standing, there's now a small mob, enough to crowd guests off of the nearby stools. She might be in there, but it's impossible to tell through the wall of women. I get up. The dead bachelorettes are shoulder to shoulder. I'm approaching slowly, trying to get a glimpse of Celeste's face between hairdos, when one of the women spins and grabs me by both shoulders, her face inches from mine. Her eyes are barely open, her mouth locked in permanent duck face. Can I have your boxers? She slurs as she leans on me, pushing me back the way I came. I need them for a scavenger hunt. I really don't care for being touched by strangers, and it's an instinct that serves me well here. I recoil fast, faster than she can keep up, and in another second she's falling. The noise her face makes as it hits the floor is loud enough to be audible over the music. An ungraceful little leap gets my ankles clear of her reach, and I seize the chance to barge through the breach in the bachelorette's defenses. 
From the glimpses I get, it's clear that the women who approached us first were chosen for being able to pass relatively gracefully as alive. Those who have joined since aren't in such good shape, and the least fortunate are in the back row, where they're less conspicuous and, judging by the assault I just repelled, more useful. Celeste is there, in the center. From here, the atmosphere is completely different. All the bachelorette's attention is on her, and they're remarkably still, paused mid-laugh with their black eyes and bloodstains like a vandalized stock photo. Celeste looks perfectly calm. She only gives me a glance, her face still holding a smile that clearly wasn't put there for me, and then she looks back at the piece of paper in her hand. There's enough written there to fill much of the page, several rounds of back and forth between her and the dead groom. She writes slowly, reading aloud as she does. I shall, sir, be the reason why your blood moves. The only question remaining is where. They all laugh, the nearest ones with perfect grace, the ones in the back like lurching animatronics. One eye accepts the paper and disappears. Celeste takes a breath, looking flush with popularity and the pleasure of holding her own in the ongoing duel of words. So what's fun to do here, she asks, as if I'm not there. A pale, puffy woman a row back from her says, They told us not to swim in the river, but I thought it was nice. They just want to keep all the water for themselves. You know what's so much fun? This woman is gesticulating with one arm while the other is missing. Boat rides in the swamp at night. Another one wears a hat with a floppy brim that covers most of her face. We should go up on the balcony. People throw you beads if you lean way over. Armless woman sighs. It's the other way around, Romelda. Even under the hat, it's clear Romelda is flummoxed. Wait, what? So I wasn't even gonna get anything and I still... Beverages! Screams one of the women and the rest of them jolt out a reflexive woo, obliterating whatever Romelda was about to say. There's a hustle to get a round of drinks. How can dead people drink? How do dead people even have money? Anyway, it gives me a chance to speak. Hey, Celeste, listen, I think we should get out of here. I expect her to say that she's having fun or that her friends seem to be fine without her, which admittedly was true even before the bachelorettes blockaded her. But instead, she just says, why? I lean in. These people aren't what they seem to be. I know. We're being characters from a TV show. Any resemblance to persons living or dead is entirely coincidental. I'm not talking about that. Look. I turn on my flashlight app again and lift my phone up. In a second, Celeste has pushed my hand down. Unlike Angelo, the women flinched, and at least the nearer ones did so in a plausibly human way. What the hell? Why are you being so rude? Thank you. That last part takes me by surprise, but then I see it was addressed to Crimp Cloud, who's here with a shot in either hand. Crap. Drinks from strangers. I should have watched the bartender make them. As I'm thinking, Crimp Cloud twitches a little, like she was about to extend one of the two shots to Celeste, but then she looks across the room toward the dead groom. He's got the scroll unrolled in his hands, and as we look, he finishes reading and looks over at us. To me, he looks the same as ever but Crimp Cloud seems to get some kind of signal out of it. She slowly turns her head towards Celeste, 
her fixed smile becoming somehow more sincere. Oh, bitch, she says. I think he really likes you. She offers Celeste a shot, and not, I could swear, the same one she was going to offer before. Celeste smiles and takes it. I have a memory of Celeste not liking the taste of straight liquor, at least not 10 years ago. I got you this, I say, raising the pink cocktail in my hand. I figure a 50% chance of a roofie is better than a 75% chance of poison. Wanna trade? The level of the liquid is lower than it should be, probably sloshed when Duckface Lady grabbed me, but the umbrella is still there. I can't tell if it amuses or irritates her. The umbrella is negotiable. The bachelorettes look as opaquely enthusiastic as ever, but suddenly I feel something pointy against my lower back, enough to make me flinch. The umbrella is acceptable. She accepts the drink and hands me the shot. We tap our cups together and I look around at the bachelorettes, careful to turn my head without moving the part of my back where the pointy thing is. To new friends. I raise the shot to my mouth, take a loud slurp, then spit it back in the cup, trying to make the process gross enough that no one will want it. Mmm, sorry, I'm allergic to tequila. Should have asked. The pointy thing makes its displeasure known, almost enough to send me stumbling forward. And then one eye is back, scroll in hand, stroking it. Special delivery, she sings. Celeste smiles and takes the paper. I scoot forward and briefly escape from the pointy thing, only to feel it return as I settle into place next to Celeste, who's too preoccupied to see me clench my teeth. I resist the urge to kick backwards, and I read. Under many lines of incomprehensible but definitely flirtatious inside jokes, Dead Groom has written, Who will tie body and blood with me? Who will see me even in the dark, be near enough to hear my secret whispers? Below it, he's drawn a line at the bottom of the page, a blank, ready for a response. Celeste? She looks at me. What does this mean? It's part of how Salvandran asks Nashima to marry him in the season finale. I read it again, mumbling. Salvandran doesn't seem to be mature enough to just ask for what he wants. Oh yeah, Salvandran is the worst, she says with zest, stealing a look across the room. So what is he, the real guy who's here with us in this bar, what is he asking you to do? Are you two just LARPing your way through this show, or... That's the thing, she says. This is where the episode ended. Her eyes go across the room again, with a look that says, Seriously? I can't see his response, but from her smile, I can guess it's something, maybe a little shrug, that says, Who cares? Isn't this a fun game? You get to decide, Crimp Cloud says. In this moment, Celeste's face brings me back to our conversation earlier when she talked about becoming someone new and how that was why she wanted me around. And right now, if the situation were any different, I would be telling her to say yes. But given the situation at hand, I have to say something I don't mean. Celeste, are you sure? I take a deep breath, picturing her fiance's douchey looking face and pray that I'm getting his name right. What is Craig gonna think about this? She stares back at me. Craig is fine with it. We're allowed to meet other people. Pete, just because we don't live in a huge place doesn't mean... She shakes her head and looks down at the paper. I can see her deciding it was the wrong idea to ask for my advice, deciding to go off on her own, and it's a decision I can't help but respect. She turns around at the bar and writes the biggest, most curly-cued possible version of her name on the blank, 
then rolls the paper up and holds it and my drink over her head. Sisters, she shouts, our captivity ends tonight. Let's go take back the world. She throws back what's left of the drink like a shot, and several of the bachelorettes reflexively throw back their own already empty shot cups. Celeste hands the scroll to one eye, saying, Ride forth, my Amazons! A cheer goes up from the group. This is going to be so much fun, Crimp Cloud says. Is it okay if we tell our friends? You've got even more friends? Celeste is momentarily nonplussed, but she seems to come down on the side of being impressed rather than put off. Oh yeah, Crimp Cloud says. You haven't met any of the boys yet. And she slips away. Celeste looks back to me. Her excitement visibly quiets as she seems to ponder what to do with me. Look, this is what I wanted to do tonight in the first place. Just nerd out with some people who like the same stuff. So I'm going to go have some fun. If I feel like it, maybe I'll have some more fun. And then I'll check in with everybody else and, I don't know, call an ambulance for Emma. And hey, if you're so worried about me being safe, come along. It sounds like an accommodation, not a request. And as little as she seems attached to the idea, I'm sure whoever is pushing the pointy thing into my back will like it even less. But by now she's looked away, not waiting for my answer. So I say, okay. The pointy thing digs in and I feel it cut this time. I wince and there's a tug on my sash pulling me away from Celeste. I'm just gonna go to the bathroom again and then I'll find you. She doesn't respond. As the hand pulls me backward, I make a quick step to the side ducking through the sash and losing it. I turn and retreat, trying to get my captor in view while also putting some distance between us. From this side, all I can see is the silhouette of someone sidling between me and Celeste. Having cut me off from my friend, she starts toward me, hand upraised with whatever weapon she's been holding to my back. I dodge some patrons and angle toward the end of the bar, where Angelo is sitting. As I get near him, she suddenly lit up. It's Duckface, her nose now lying sideways. She's holding a spike heel, the stiletto on its bottom shaved to a point. We square off for a second. She glances over her shoulder at where the other bachelorettes are gathering again. Looking me in the eye and giving the tip of the heel a slow lick, she steps away. Angelo has a flat smile that shows no surprise. The stool next to him is still empty. Preoccupied as I am, I recognize the suspiciousness of a persistently empty stool in a crowded bar. If some kind of ghost predator were to set a trap here, this is what it would look like. But Celeste Entourage is hustling her toward the door. I need more of his obnoxious knowledge, and I only have a minute. I stand next to the empty stool. So they need a wedding to get out of here, and they've already got a groom, so they look for brides for him. Brides can't be that hard to find. Why are they still here? They bring him plenty. But he's old and picky. So far, he's found every one of them good for a sip, but not for a swallow. You know bachelors and their one-night stands. Speaking of sips and not swallows, I'm still holding the shot. So what, they kill the brides and he has his way with them and they join his army? No. Who wants a one-night stand to stay around forever? He just has his way with them. Who knows what they do after they hook up with a dead guy who's missing half his face, but he doesn't kill them. I look down into the shot. The bachelorette had two shots, and she waited for a signal from dead groom. So if one of them meant no, and the woman who drank from it would walk away alive, then the other one meant yes, and... God.
God, I had this stuff in my mouth. I set it down on the bar. Angelo looks intrigued for the first time. No way. Did he pick her? I nod. Oh, shit. Every tour guide in the quarter is going to have to update their story, and they're going to have to get it from yours truly. Okay, well, let's try to give this ghost story a happy ending. How do I stop him? He stares at me. It's the first time I've asked him a question and he hasn't instantly answered, helpfully or not. You said this is the one day you have in the year. What if I can hold them up until after midnight? If you think you can delay them that long, be my guest. I check my phone. It's barely 11. I look up. Celeste is gone. I have to go or I'll lose sight of her. What about... What if we made a different wedding happen? Beat them to it. He spreads his hands. They've had a long time to get attached to a certain vision of things. I wouldn't expect their cooperation. Do you not have any ideas? My idea is that this is a rerun. I've been watching this place for years. The same cycles play out over and over again. Little girls and little boys come in for a thrill and make the same dumb choices, get the same consequences, and cry the same tears. I've stepped out of it, and I'm free to just sit here and watch the trapped animals chew their own legs off. He picks up the almost definitely poisoned tequila shot and throws it back. I take a last look toward the door. Celeste is long since gone, and there's no way I'll be able to spot her in the crowd outside. Where are they going? The church? No. We roll with the times, he tells me in a dress. Enjoy your visit to the spiderweb. I'm almost to the door when I collide with a bro. Sunglasses on in the dark, unbuttoned suit jacket, no shirt, handful of $1 bills stapled to his chest. Not going nowhere, he slurs. Stay in purry. My boy's getting hutched. I take a step back, and then there's another one at my side. Burnt out cigar between his teeth, slicked back hair all out of place, soaking wet handlebar mustache. Behind them, another one, necktie around his forehead, a few days of facial hair. They're flooding in the door, and as they stumble forward, I stumble backward, bumping into patrons and feeling the splash of their drinks soaking into me. I hear a roar behind me, a big voice with no consonants, and I turn. Dead groom has risen from his stool, and his arms are in the air, full bottles of liquor in either hand, shoulders hunched, guts clenched, neck veined, fabric mask billowing with the scream. Behind him, a bartender still holds his empty hands in the air where the bottles must have been a second before. And behind me rises the responding guffaw of the bachelors, still body-slamming their way through the door, piling over each other like cologne-soaked ants. One of them is up on the bar now, faking a strip tease with one strap of his tank top off his shoulder, missing front teeth on full display. Another is climbing up, slipping and slamming his head on the bar, climbing and slipping and slamming again, laughing at the top of his lungs. And between them, Javier, who has no doubt seen a lot and probably been conscripted to play makeshift bouncer more than a few times, looks worried. On the dance floor and nearby, bargoers stand frozen or are starting to retreat toward who knows where, corners or bathrooms or friends. And at the end of the bar, Angelo looks deeply intrigued. There's no way to the door. I scan the room, and behind the bar I see the bar back from earlier, towel in pocket, scooping ice from a bucket into a cooler, indifferent to the spreading chaos. 
I remember the innocuous door I saw them come through before. I spot it, and I run. One last look at the room. Javier and two other dancers are retreating along the bar from bachelors creeping forward with arms posed for a hug. The bartenders are dodging bottles swung by bros who have decided to follow their master's lead and claim drinks for free. And the master himself is in the middle of the dance floor, bottles still in hand, arms around somebody, Emma, who is making out with him with abandon through the mask. I'm out the door. It isn't far to the address Angelo gave me. The map on my phone steers me away from Bourbon along one of the cross streets, and in half a block things are quiet and dark. I go at a steady run, and in a few gasping minutes I'm in front of a tiny building with a neon sign in the window that reads, Wedding Chapel, its pink lights illuminating a piece of paper taped underneath with a sharpie message reading, 24 hours, waiting periods waived. The doors are wide open, looking into a single large room. If they're planning to block the way in, they haven't done it yet. I give my legs one last push and sprint inside. I find myself running along the proverbial aisle toward the proverbial altar. On either side are rows of folding chairs, enough for a big crowd. A small crowd has already claimed some of them. Dead bachelorettes are sitting scattered across the room, while others who don't want to or physically can't sit down are pacing the outer aisles or standing in corners. Mostly they seem preoccupied. Each one may be imagining the long-ago, faraway ceremony that tonight is supposed to substitute for. Crimp Cloud is one of the few to turn and look as I come in. Um, Marcy? Paige? If you're gonna just stand still and rot, could you at least rot in front of the door? I'm more than ready to stop running, but I keep moving long enough to get well clear of the two bachelorette bouncers, who stand from their seats near the door and shuffle to block it. One of them has scrapes all down one side of her body and face, as if she was dragged from a moving car, and under the brighter lights, the wounds have crossed the narrow line from realistic to real. I look toward Celeste, standing at the center of the room, and I can tell that she's seen this too. She's picked the spot where she can stand furthest from most of them, but she loses some of that perfect distance to walk toward me. Pete, I shouldn't have come here. They're all... I know. You alright? Yeah. She takes a breath. Things seemed cool till we got here, but then they got quiet and once we were inside I could see... Good evening, sir. Are you the groom? A fluffy-haired old man in a suit is standing in a corner. We can start in a moment. We're just, uh, handling the paperwork. His eyes dart to a nearby computer, where one eye is seated, typing away. We've all been watching weddings in here for years. Celeste and I both jump at the hissing voice of a bachelorette next to us. She wears bunny ears and stands in sorority squat position, maybe stuck that way. She knows the whole computer system. She's going to make sure everything is perfect. In the meantime, the old man continues, please feel free to peruse our catalog. We have six different song choices to play under your vows. Celeste grabs my shoulders. What are they going to do to me? They're stuck here and they need someone to marry their guy so they can leave. I realize that she looks a little hopeful. And then they would take you with them. She nods. That's the part I was waiting for. Yeah, sorry, buried the lead there. Hey, sorority squat says. Listen, we don't want you to do it because you have to. Yeah. Others are gathering in on us, and the one-armed woman from the bar is speaking. We can tell you really like him. We all like him too. We all wish it could be us. 
Celeste has almost begun to speak when she adds, but it can't, we're not brides. But I don't like him, Celeste says. I don't know anything about him except that he's the kind of guy who would, brides always say that, sorority squat says. There's always cold feet on the big day. It's traditional. And we really want to go home. This is the woman with the third alternate best bitch tank top. It's so nice of you to help us get home. But you're not being nice to me. I didn't agree to this. You did? Crimp Cloud has joined us. You signed the paper. No take backsies. We were pretending. When aren't a bride and groom pretending? When do they ever know what they're really getting themselves into? Anyway, marriage isn't about love. Everyone knows what marriage is really about. They all nod and open their mouths to speak, and the next few seconds are utter cacophony while they all say something different, tapering off one by one until a very old woman I hadn't noticed before is speaking alone, saying, until she's carried kicking and screaming across the threshold. We really wanted you to have a good time, Crimp Cloud says. We didn't want it to hurt. We were going to poison you and it would have been so fast. She glares at me. You would have been doing all of this from our side and it would be so much easier. Celeste takes a step back from them and whispers to me. I bet if we ran for it, we could just knock them down. I shake my head. You're tougher than they look. They wrecked the bar after you left. Seriously? Yeah, they went full tilt bachelor party. Even saw him making out with somebody. Somehow this seems to surprise her. God, what a bunch of assholes. There's gotta be another alternative. Excuse me, sir. The old man shouts from across the room. I couldn't help but overhear the word alternative. I want to emphasize that for a very slight markup, we can offer Wicca, Mafia, Voodoo, Elvis, Drag, or Vampire ceremonies. I see Celeste flinch. Pete. I follow her eyes. In the doorway, a slack-jawed bachelor is staring up at the ceiling. The rest of them can't be far behind. She spins to face me. What if you and I just got married right now? No! Crimp Cloud yells. We haven't come all this way for a fake little pretend little... She steps slowly toward us. We want a traditional wedding and we'll hold you still if we have to. I admit I'm feeling intimidated, but Celeste suddenly looks at Crimp Cloud with something else on her face. Did you say traditional? She looks down the aisle as Dead Groom and his cortege enter the building. Oh, she says, we're gonna make this real traditional. Even through my worry for Celeste, I find myself impressed with how well the minister does his job. Once the bachelorette's back off of him, he straps on a little white collar and assumes an air of instant authority. Having mistaken me for the groom, he now reads the room and shifts his attention to dead groom, walking him into position and not missing a beat over his ensemble. I reflect that officiating weddings near Bourbon Street must regularly involve nudity, vintage clothing, and bloodstains, but I would have expected at least a second's pause overseeing all three at once. With dead groom and Celeste taking their places, everyone else makes for the folding chairs, and I have to run to get a spot in the front row, in the chair that'll be easiest for Celeste to see. I don't like the idea of having my back to the bachelorettes, and I can't think what help I'll be if things go south, but the least I can offer is visible support for whatever she has in mind. She stands, looking dead groom in the eye. For a second, I see her rubbing her fingers together at her side, something she always did when she was nervous, 
But then the minister hands her a bouquet, clearly well used, and she takes it and is completely still. For Dead Groom's part, he holds the scroll in one hand, while the fingers of the other work at the empty air as if wishing for a sword. Ladies and gentlemen, the minister says, we are gathered here today to join these two in marriage. But first, a few ground rules. Please do not take photos or videos. The chapel has its own cameras and you will be sent an order form after the ceremony. You may speak your own vows, but please keep them to a maximum of 90 seconds. And please do not touch the volume knob on the speakers. This appears to be addressed to a specific bachelor in the front row, who abruptly leans back in his seat and looks at his fingernails. The minister looks between Celeste and Dead Groom for acknowledgement, but Celeste doesn't seem to have done so much as blink, and Dead Groom, I suspect, could match her stare all day. In that case, the minister turns to face Dead Groom, glancing down at a paper in his hand. Do you, Armand, take this woman? Excuse me, Celeste says. Holding the stare, she nods down at something. What's that? Dead Groom cocks his head. That, right there. She points. His hand goes up to his blood-soaked lace collar, and he lifts it slightly between his fingers, as if to say, Uh, this? No, not that, she hisses. That. She steps forward, and I hold my breath as she prods him, not at all gently, right on the neck. He breaks eye contact with her, trying to look. I squint. It's all bloodstains, but somewhere in there is a smudge that's a slightly different color. A bit of... lipstick? He touches the spot, unable to see what at this point I and the minister and both squads have recognized. He rubs at it and lifts his finger to look, but she slaps his hand. Don't try and hide it! She takes a deep breath. You've been playing... tonsil hockey! Her accent, usually subtle, goes through the roof. For a second, I'm bewildered. This is what she wants to prioritize? And then my eye lands on the minister. He's watching Celeste as calmly as if she were saying her vows. He's used to this. And then I realize what she's doing. I also realize I left out a key detail, and I speak up. With your maid of honor. She looks at me, genuinely agog. With my maid of honor? Oh, shit. I look behind me and see Duckface Woman, her mostly frozen mouth contorting toward a smile. This is getting good. Celeste is looking at Dead Groom with fresh rancor. Not to mention I heard you made a total ass of yourself at the bar right before our wedding. One of the bachelors pipes up. Stole two bottles right in front of everyone. Probably gonna get his ass arrested. I turn around. Another of them is nodding. Plus, it was one bottle of clear and one bottle of brown. Nasty. Dead Groom is looking at them, spreading his hands as if to say, What the hell, man? Don't try and blame them, Celeste says. Yeah, I yell. They're like a tenth your age. One eye stands up from her seat in the front row her namesake eyeball wide, and a tear running down her face. Stop this. You can't marry him. Because I'm in love with him. From there, it's chaos. But it's a kind of chaos that everyone clearly knows their part in. One eye starts barging forward. Two of the bachelors stand and hold her arms, while others in the audience whoop along. Celeste backs away from everyone, yelling accusations I can't hear. 
The minister steps to his desk and calmly picks up a can of pepper spray, and one of the bachelorettes pulls out a cell phone and starts shooting video. Only dead groom seems uncertain, and then only briefly. For a moment, he stares at Celeste, and then he steps toward her, raising a fist. All I have time to do is throw myself against him, grabbing for the scroll. As I hit, his insides make a sloshing sound. I can tell it wasn't enough to knock him down, but in a twist that's too fast for me to follow, I'm on my back on the floor, the wind knocked out of me, and he's on top of me. Through the haze, his mask is dangling in my eyes and I can feel blood dripping on my face. I see Celeste pull the scroll from his hand, rip it in half, and yell, The wedding is off! The noise in the room hushes. Dead Groom is still for a moment, and I'm able to scuttle out from under him and away from the audience. Celeste meets me and tries to help me up, but we both freeze at the sight of Crimp Cloud closing in. She's between us and the rest of the room, backlit with the photo lighting, the place's cameras no doubt automatically snapping photos as she looms over us. As my eyes adjust, I make out her face. There's a shine of moisture in her eyes. This, she says, this is the kind of wedding I always wanted to go to. And then she's gone. I manage a shallow breath. The room is empty. A second breath, enough to speak. Thanks. Celeste takes my hand and helps me up. Thank Emma. She's the one who reminded me that for what we're doing, this is as traditional as it gets. We're alone in the room now, apart from the minister, who, for the first time, looks a little impressed. Well, he says, surveying the room. Where a moment ago there was clamor and chaos, now there are just a few flipped chairs. One of the easier cleanups we've ever had to do. It takes a few hints for us to realize that he's got another wedding in ten minutes. We tidy up the chairs while he tries to fix whatever one eye did to his computer, and then we head out, scoping out the street before we leave the building, looking around corners before we proceed. We can hear the churn of Bourbon Street, but for now, we keep our distance. After a short stretch of silence, Celeste asks, Wait, how did you know who those people were? A guy at the bar told me. She takes in this unheroic explanation. Did he say why? Like, what made them that way? Kind of. He said people get stuck in ceremonies and... Something occurs to me. The drink Angelo gave me. She downed the whole thing. Celeste, you feeling alright? Yeah. A little shaken up. A little grossed out, but fine. It had been plenty of time for anything in the drink to take effect. So no roofie. A free drink was just a free drink. Maybe an empty stool was just an empty stool. And maybe a flirty old guy with nothing to show off but his knowledge and a plaque was exactly that. I check my phone. Past midnight. He'll be gone. Celeste is peering at me. Are you feeling alright? Yeah, I just thought about something. Anyway, he said they all died doing something they believed in, and they needed to finish it. What do you make of it? Of what? The theory the guy had, that ceremonies are terrible things that'll trap you if you let them. He knew a lot of stuff. Everything he said panned out, apart from us getting out alive. Which, now that I think about it, is a pretty significant blot on Angelo's record. And what about this ceremony, the one we're doing? Your bachelorette party? What about it? Well, from the vibe I've gotten so far, it just... 
wouldn't surprise me if you identified with the image of a dead person lurching your way through things you don't really want to do. It's as gently stated as it could possibly be, and I take the time to let it land. I did kind of come here feeling that way, apart from the fact that you were here, which is why I came. She nods. And now? Now, having participated, I've changed my mind. It isn't a corpse, it's a starved, abandoned orphan. And its best hope for survival is to be adopted by someone like you. I pause. But we can't expect people at every gay bar to know that. She laughs. I think we'll go incognito the rest of the weekend. At that, the whole night feels worth it. So, has this ruined the French Quarter for you? Oh, I'll definitely be coming back. Maybe not on a weekend next time, but Tuesday and Wednesday are my usual days off. I think I'd like it here on a Tuesday. I think Craig might, too. She looks at me. You keep looking away whenever I mention him. I keep my eyes straight ahead. I have no grounds whatsoever for having formed an opinion of him. Well, that's very wise. He saw a photo of you and said you looked like the kind of smart, cosmopolitan person our town could stand to have visiting more often. He did not. No one back home says cosmopolitan. Till I moved away, I thought it meant you were from space. She chuckles. We've been meandering, keeping on the edges of the light and the crowds, but now we slow down together as we approach an intersection. Seriously, she says. I told him a ton of stories about you. I think he's a little intimidated. Should we go find him and make introductions so I can disappoint him as soon as possible? She smiles. Yeah. I'd rather he get to know the real thing. That was Ride or Die, written and narrated by me, Andrew Ferrier. If you like what you hear, you can support the show at Ko-Fi, that's ko-fi.com slash thesnakespaw. And you can also find us at The Snake's Paw on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.